For the Love of Books by Michael Austin. Today we will continue with Little Women by Louisa May Albert, Chapter 8. As Laurie turned the bend, he shouted back, Keep near the shore, it isn't safe in the middle. Joe heard, but Amy was struggling to her feet and did not catch a word. Joe glanced over her shoulder, and the little demon she was harboring said in her ear, No matter whether she heard or not, let her take care of herself. Laurie had vanished round the bend. Joe was just at the turn, and Amy far behind, striking out toward the smoother ice in the middle of the river. For a minute, Joe stood still with a strange feeling in her heart. Then she resolved to go on. But something held and turned her around just in time to see Amy throw up her hands and go down with a sudden crash of rotten ice, the splash of water, and a cry that made Joe's heart stand still with fear. She tried to call Lori, but her voice was gone. She tried to rush forward, but her feet seemed to have no strength in them. And for a second, she could only stand motionless, staring with a terror-stricken face at the little blue hood above the black water. Something rushed swift by her, and Lori's voice cried out, Bring a rail, quick, quick! How she did it, she never knew, but for the next few minutes she worked as if possessed, blindly obeying Lori, who was quite self-possessed and lying flat, held Amy up by his arms and hockey stick till Joe dragged a rail from the fence, and together they got the child out, more frightened than hurt. Now then, we must walk her home as fast as we can. Pile our things on her while I get off these confounded skates, cried Lori, wrapping his coat around Amy and tugging away at the straps, which never seemed so intricate before. Shivering, dripping, and crying, they got Amy home, and after an exciting time of it, she fell asleep, rolled in blankets before a hot fire. During the bustle, Joe had scarcely spoken but flown about, looking pale and wild, with her things half off, her dress torn, and her hands cut and bruised by ice and rails and refractory buckles. When Amy was comfortably asleep, the house quiet, and Mrs. March sitting by the bed, she called Joe to her and began to bind up her hurt hands. "'Are you sure she is safe?' whispered Joe, looking remorsefully at the golden head which might have been swept away from her sight forever under the treacherous ice. Quite safe, dear. She is not hurt and won't even take cold. I think you were so sensible in covering and getting her home quickly, replied her mother cheerfully. Lori did it all. I only let her go. Mother, if she should die, it would be my fault. And Joe dropped down beside the bed in a passion of penitent tears telling all that had happened, bitterly condemning her hardness of heart and sobbing out her her gratitude for being spared the heavy punishment which might have come upon her. It's my dreadful temper. I try to cure it. I think I have, and then it breaks out worse than ever. Oh, mother, what shall I do? What shall I do? cried poor Joe in despair. Watch and pray, dear, never get tired of trying, and never think it is impossible to conquer your fault, said Mrs. March, drawing the blousy head to her 
shoulder and kissing the wet cheek so tenderly that Jill cried even harder. You don't know. You can't guess how bad it is. It seems as if I could any I could do anything when I'm in a passion. I get so savage. I could hurt anyone and enjoy it. I'm afraid I shall do something dreadful someday and spoil my life and make everybody hate me. Oh, mother, help me. Do help me. I will, child. I will. Don't cry so bitterly. But remember this day and resolve with all your souls that you will never know another like it. Joe, dear, we all have our temptations, some far greater than yours, and it often takes us all our lives to conquer them. You think your temper is the worst in the world, but mine used to be just like it. Yours, mother? Why? You are never angry. And for the moment, Joe forgot remorse and surprise. I've been trying to cure it for 40 years and have only succeeded in controlling it. I'm angry nearly every day of my life, Joe. But I have learned not to show it, and I still hope to learn not to feel it, though it may take me another 40 years to do so. The patience and the humility of the face she loved so well was a better lesson to Joe than the wisest lecture, the sharpest reproof. She felt comforted at once by the sympathy and confidence given her. The knowledge that her mother had a fault like hers and tried to mend it made her own easier to bear and strengthened her resolution to cure it. Though 40 years seemed rather a long time to watch and pray to a girl of 15. Mother, you are angry when you fold your lips tight together and go out of the room sometimes. When Aunt March scolds or people worry you, asked Joe, feeling nearer and dearer to her mother than ever before. Yes, I've learned to check the hasty words that rise to my lips. And when I feel that they mean to break out against my will, I just go away for a minute and give myself a little shake for being so weak and wicked, answered Mrs. March with a sigh and a smile as she soothed and fastened up Joe's disheveled hair. How did you learn to keep still? That is what troubles me, for the sharp words fly out before I know what I'm about, and more I say, the worst I get, till it's a pleasure to hurt people's feelings and say dreadful things. Tell me, how do you do it, Marmy, dear? My good mother used to help me, as you do us, interrupted Joe with a grateful kiss. But I lost her when I was a little older than you are, and for years had to struggle on alone, for I was too proud to confess my weakness to anyone else. I had a hard time, Joe, and shed a good many bitter tears over my failures. For in spite of my efforts, I never seemed to get on. Then your father came, and I was so happy that I found it easy to be good. But by and by, when I had four little daughters round me and were poor, then the old trouble began again, for I am not patient by nature. And I, it tried me very much to see my children wanting anything. Poor mother, what helped you then? Your father, Joe. He never loses patience, never doubts or complains, but always hopes and works and waits so cheerfully that one is ashamed to do otherwise before him. He helped and comforted me and showed me that I must try to practice all the virtues I would have my little girls possess, for I was their example. It was easier to try for your sakes than for my own. A startled or surprised look from one of you when I spoke sharply rebuked me more than any words could have done. 
and the love, respect, and confidence of my children was the sweetest reward I could receive for my efforts to be the woman I would have them copy. Oh, mother, I'm ever half as good as you. I shall be satisfied, cried Joe, much touched. I hope you'll be great, a great deal better, dear, but you must keep watch over your bosom enemy, as father calls it, or it may sadden, if not spoil, your life. You've had a warning. Remember it and try with heart and soul to master this quick temper before it brings you greater sorrow and regret than you have known today. I will try, mother. I truly will. But you must help me, remind me, and keep me from flying out. I used to see father sometimes put his finger on his lips and look at you with a very kind but sober face, and you always folded your lips tight and went away. Was he reminding you then? asked Joe softly. Yes, I asked him to help me so, and he never forgot it, but saved me from many a sharp word by that little gesture and kind look. Joe saw that her mother's eyes filled up and her lips trembled as she spoke. And fearing that she said that she had said too much, she whispered anxiously, Was it wrong to watch you and to speak of it? I didn't mean to be rude, but it's so comfortable to say all I think to you and feel so safe and happy here. My Joe, you may say anything to your mother, for it is my greatest happiness and pride to feel that my girls confide in me and know how much I love them. I thought I'd grieved you. No, dear, but speaking of your father reminded me how much I miss him, how much I owe him, and how faithfully I should watch and work to keep his little daughters safe and good for him. Yet you told him to go, mother, and didn't cry when he went, and never complain now, or seem as if you needn't any help, said Joe, wondering. I gave my best to the country I love and kept my tears till he was gone. Why should I complain when we both have merrily done our duty and we surely and will surely be happier for it in the end? If I don't seem to need help, it is because I have a better friend, even than father, to comfort and sustain me. My child, the troubles and temptations of your life are beginning and may be many. But you can overcome and outlive them all if you learn to feel the strength and tenderness of your heavenly Father as you do that you're of your earthly one. The more you love and trust him, the nearer you will feel to him, and the less you will depend on his human power and wisdom. His love and care never tire or change, can never be taken from you, but may become the source of life, lifelong peace, happiness, and strength. Believe this heartily and go to God with all your little cares and hopes and sins and sorrows as freely and confidingly as you come to your mother. Joe's only answer was to hold her mother close and in the silence which followed the sincerest prayer she had ever prayed left her heart without words. For in that sad yet happy hour she had learned not only the bitterness of remorse and despair but the sweetness of self-denial and self-control and led by her mother's hand, she had drawn near to the friend who always welcomes every child with a love stronger than that of any father, tenderer, tenderer than that of any mother. Amy stirred and sighed in her sleep, and as if eager to begin at once to mend her fault, Joe looked up with an expression on her face which it had never worn before. I let the sun go down on my anger. I wouldn't forgive her. And today, if it hadn't been for Lori, it might have been too late. How could I be so wicked, said Joe, half loud, half loud. 
as she leaned over her sister, softly stroking the wet hair scattered on the pillow. As if she heard, Amy opened her eyes and held out her arms with a smile that went straight to Joe's heart. Neither said a word, but they hugged one another close. In spite of the blankets and everything was forgiven and forgotten in one hearty kiss. That's the end of chapter eight. Chapter nine, Meg goes to Vanity Fair. I do think it was the most fortunate thing in the world that those children should have the measles just now, said Meg, one April day as she stood packing the go a Brody trunk in her room, surrounded by her sisters. And so nice of Annie Moffat not to forget her promise. A whole fortnight of fun will be regularly splendid, replied Joe, looking like a windmill as she folded skirts with her long arms. In such lovely weather, I'm so glad of that, added Beth, tidily sorting neck and hair ribbons in her best box, lent for the great occasion. I wish I was going to have a fine time and wear all these nice things, said Amy, with her mouth full of pins as she artistically replenished her sister's cushion. I wish you were all going, but as you can't, I shall keep my adventures to tell you when I come back. I'm sure it's the least I can do when you have been so kind, lending me things and helping me get ready, said Meg, glancing around the room at her very simple outfit, which seemed nearly perfect in their eyes. What did Mother give you out of her treasure box, asked Amy, who had not been present at the opening of a certain cedar chest in which Mrs. March kept a few relics of past splendor as gifts for her girls when the proper time came. A pair of silk stockings, that pretty carved fan, and a lovely blue sash. I wanted the violet silk, but there isn't time to make it over, so I must be contented with my old Tarleton. It will look nice over my new muslin skirt, and the sash will set it off beautifully. I wish I hadn't smashed my coral bracelet bracelet for you. Might have had it, said Joe who loved to give and lend, but whose possessions were usually too dilapidated to be be of much use. It will look nice over my new muslin skirt, and the sash will set it off beautifully. I wish I hadn't smashed my coral bracelet for you. Might have had it, said Joe, who loved to give and lend, but whose possessions were usually too dilapidated to be of much use. There's a lovely old-fashioned pearl set in the treasure chest. The mother said real flowers were the prettiest ornament for a young girl. And Lori promised to send me all I want, replied Meg. Now let me see. There's my new gray walking suit. Just curl up the feather in my hat, Beth. Then my poplin for Sunday and the small party. It looks heavy for spring, doesn't it? The violet silk would be so nice. Oh, dear. Never mind, you've got the Tarleton for the big party, and you always look like an angel in white, said Amy, brooding over the little store of finery in which her soul delighted. It isn't low-necked, and it doesn't sweep enough, but it will have to do. My blue house dress looks so well turned and freshly trimmed that I feel as if I've got a new one. My silk sash isn't a bit the fashion, and my bonnet doesn't look like Sally's. I didn't like to say anything, but I was sadly disappointed in my umbrella. I told Mother Black with a white handle, but she forgot and bought a green one with a yellowish handle. 
It's strong and neat, so I ought not to complain, but I know I shall feel ashamed of it beside Annie's silk one with a gold top, sighed Meg, serving the little umbrella with great disfavor. Change it, advised Joe. I won't be so silly or hurt Marmy's feelings when she took so much pains to get my things. It's a nonsensical, nonsensical notion of mine, and I'm not going to give it up. My silk stockings and two pairs of new gloves are my comfort. You are a dear to lend me yours, Joe. I feel so rich and sort of elegant with two pairs. And the old one's cleaned up for common. And Meg took a refreshing peep at her glove box. Annie Moffat has blue and pink bows on her nightcaps. Would you put some on mine, she asked, as Beth brought up a pile of snowy muslins, fresh from Hannah's hands. No, I wouldn't, for the smart caps won't match the plain gowns without any trimming on them. Poor folks shouldn't rig, said Cho decidedly. I wonder if I shall ever be happy enough to have real lace on my clothes and bows on my caps, said Meg impatiently. You said the other day that you'd be perfectly happy if you could only go to Annie Moffat's, observed Beth in her quiet way. So I did. Well, I'm happy, and I won't fret, but it does seem as if the more one gets, the more one wants, doesn't it? There now, the trays are ready and everything in but my ball dress, which I shall leave her mother to pack, said Meg, cheering up as she glanced from the half-filled trunk to the many times pressed and mended white tartlet, which she called her ball dress, with an important air. The next day was fine, and Meg departed in style for a fortnight of novelty and pleasure. Mrs. March had consented to the visit rather reluctantly, fearing that Margaret would come back more discontented than she went. But she begged so hard, and Sally had promised to take good care of her, and a little pleasure seemed so delightful after a winter of irksome work that the mother yielded and the daughter went to take her first taste of fashionable life. The Moffats were very fashionable and simple. Meg was rather daunted at first by the splendor of their house and the elegance of its occupants. But they were kindly people in spite of the frivolous life they led and soon put their guests at her ease. Perhaps Meg felt, without understanding why, that they were not particularly cultivated or intelligent people and that all their gilding could not quite conceal the ordinary material of which they were made. It certainly was agreeable to fare sumptuously, drive in a fine carriage, wear her best frock every day, and do nothing but enjoy herself. It suited her exactly, and soon she began to imitate the manners and conversation of those about her, to put on little airs and graces, use French phrases, crimp her hair, take in her dresses, and talk about the fashions as well as she could. The more she saw of Annie Moffat's pretty things, the more she envied her and sighed to be rich. Home now looked bare and dismal as she thought of it. Work grew harder than ever, and she felt that she was a very destitute and much injured girl in spite of the new gloves and silk stockings. She had not much time for repinning, however, for the three young girls were busily employed in having a good time. They shopped, walked, rode, and called all day went to theaters and operas, or frolicked at home in the evening. For Annie had many friends and knew how to entertain them. Her older sisters were very fine young ladies, and one was engaged, which was extremely interesting and romantic, Meg thought. 
Mr. Moffat was a fat, jolly old gentleman who knew her father and Mrs. Moffat, a fat and jolly old lady who took as great a fancy to Meg as her daughter had done. Everyone petted her.